Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And we're going to be having an important discussion today about uh, the impact of health insurance on mortality and other health outcomes. This has been uh, uh, an important part of the debate over not just health policy for, uh, for, for decades, but in particular the debate over the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. In uh, Congress's recent attempts to repeal and replace Obamacare, we heard a lot of competing claims about the effect that Obamacare would have, uh, has had, and the effect that its repeal would have on uh, health outcomes, uh, including uh, uh, mortality and other measures of health. And we're very pleased to have two of the nation's leading scholars on these questions here today to talk to us about it. We're going to be discussing uh, uh, a paper that one of them has done, but uh, certainly they've both contributed greatly to the literature in this area. Uh, the uh, paper that, uh, that, uh, that uh, 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 one of our speakers is going to be presenting is called The Long-Term Effect of Health Insurance on Near-Elderly Health and Mortality. And that's going to be uh, presented by one of the co-authors, Bernie Black. Bernie is a is the Nicholas D. I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing this correctly. I'm not sure I know either. Try to Chabria, uh, professor at Northwestern University School of Law and the Kellogg School of Management, um, and he's going to be discussing his paper and providing comment on his paper will be me, but also uh, Ben Summers of the Harvard H. T. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Summers is an economist and a physician there. He also, in addition to uh, being a co-author on many of the, uh, uh, the leading studies of the effect that health insurance has on healthcare utilization and health outcomes, uh, Dr. Summers also won the 2017 Health Services Research Impact Award from Academy Health, which is an organization uh, of uh, academics who work in health policy. So the way this is going to work is uh, uh, Professor Black is going to be presenting uh, his paper, commenting on the uh, on the broader literature along the way. Uh, then I'm going to uh, provide some comments, and uh, Dr. Summers will as well. We'll then open uh, the uh, uh, open the floor to questions from the audience. I would ask uh, everyone in the audience, please, to silence your phones. I would ask the speakers to do so, too, if you haven't already. Uh, and with that, I'll turn things over to Bernie. All right, thank you. So title, uh, long-term effect, um, short-term effect of health insurance on health um, from uh, some uh, both randomized trials and quasi-experimental studies, not much. Uh, long-term effect, much less is known about. Uh, we don't have uh, good long-term randomized trials. We don't have good long-term natural experiments. Uh, we're going to have to do something else. Uh, then another part of the title, the effect on near-elderly health and mortality, and that's important. Uh, I'd like to know the effect of health insurance on elderly health and mortality. I can't ask that question empirically because we give them all insurance. We call it Medicare. Um, we give insurance to a bunch of other groups, too. We give insurance to pregnant women. Um, we think it's good for their health and the health of their babies, and after all, their babies will be citizens. And indeed, this is the only health insurance program that is, by design, open to undocumented immigrants. If you're pregnant in the U.S., you get covered for, uh, for labor and delivery. Um, why? Maybe quite sensibly. We want your kids to be healthy. Maybe we don't care about you, but we care about them. Um, so this is limited to a research question that we can actually ask, right? 
near elderly, um, health and mortality. Let's start with um, uh, the policy question, right? We can cover more people. The Affordable Care Act does so. It's going to cost money. Uh, how much? We can discuss. That's not my project. Uh, this project is about um, will it save lives? How many? Uh, what's the effect on healthcare utilization uh, and on health while you're uh, still alive? Um, in the context of our uniquely expensive but not very good healthcare uh, system. Um, so one view is that uh, the Affordable Care Act will save tens of thousands of lives each year. And uh, that comes from, from our president and from a number of prior studies. And indeed, if you just run a simple uh, regression, uh, and you just look at the effect of, of uninsurance. Uh, can't use that. Okay. Um, on mortality after, say, 10 years, the uninsured die at a higher rate than the privately insured. Uh, widely shared view, health insurance saves lives. Well, is that right? Uh, how about instead of comparing the uninsured to the privately insured, we compare them to the publicly insured? Uh, either Medicare under 65 or more common Medicaid and VA. And then it turns out that it looks like public insurance is bad for your health. And we could save many billions of dollars by removing this, this misfortune from the people who now have this particular type of insurance. Well, maybe that's not right either. Maybe the world is more complicated. Um, both of these are uh, association, not causation. The privately insured are healthier and live longer and would do so whether they were insured or not. The publicly insured are sicker and die sooner. Um, partly they're insured because they're already sicker. Uh, in our uh, general health insurance environment, if you're healthy, you're employed. If you're employed, you're insured. Uh, we need to untangle and try to figure out as best we can what the effect is of adding insurance to someone while changing nothing else about them. Uh, as I said, the best research design, natural randomized experiment, not available in the long term, uh, but uh, the, the recent Oregon health insurance uh, experiment found no short-term effect on mortality after two years, and maybe more troubling, no effect on markers of future health, cholesterol levels, um, HbA1c levels for diabetics, uh, blood pressure, small effects from the RAND health insurance experiment as well. You can look at a natural experiment where somebody shocks the world rather than a true randomized experiment. Um, uh, ben Summers has done, the, done some of this work. Um, I think the right answer there is short-term, not much. Uh, the age discontinuity at 65, we see no short-term uh, effect on, uh, on mortality. Um, uh, ben Summers finds some effects, but I think they aren't statistically significant. Maybe we'll get to that later. So what are we going to do? We don't have a randomized experiment. We don't have a DID. Um, uh, I, I see. So you, you want me to, to lean <laughs> forward or something like that. OK. So, sorry. Uh, OK. Mike may not pick you up. Yes, it's not picking me up, but maybe I'm talking, talking loudly enough. OK, but in the long term, we can't do that. We can do a pure observational study, as it's called, third best design. And a number of these studies have been done. And most of them find a big effect of insurance on mortality. And I've given you a couple of examples uh, on the screen. And that's where Barack Obama's uh, estimate comes from. He didn't make it up out of thin air. He made it up by uh, relying on prior studies that indeed found a big effect. Indeed, I think the best prior study uh, by McWilliams and co-authors uh, in Health Affairs a dozen years ago finds a 43% higher mortality rate for the uninsured. I'm going to try to persuade you that that's just wrong. Okay, so 
Um, what if we, instead of waiting 10 years, let's wait 18 years. Our, our, our sample goes out to 20, right? Um, uh, I'm just gonna run a simple regression of whether you're dead after 10 waves of this survey that we rely on, which is 18 years, and uh, we have higher mortality for the uninsured. And this time I did it versus both the privately insured and the publicly insured. Well, what's wrong with that? Why is that not a measure that uninsurance is, uh, is bad for your health? What have I left out? Covariates, right? Omitted variable bias. The treated people who were already uninsured, right? I'm gonna call the treatment being uninsurance when the survey that I rely on, the health and retirement study in 1992 starts, differ in a bunch of ways from the control people who are already insured. And so the simple regression doesn't pick that up. So let's add a whole bunch of covariates. And that's the nice thing about this data set, the health and retirement study. We know lots and lots about you. We work really hard to, to extract as much about you as we possibly can. Um, turns out the privately insured indeed are wealthier and better health than the uninsured, less likely to smoke, be overweight, and so on. The publicly insured are poor and in worse health. Um, let's control for all those coefficients and the effect goes away. Right, so the coefficient on a, uh, a zero one variable for whether you're uninsured at the beginning is now 0 0.008, uh, very small, statistically insignificant. Uh, so do we conclude that health insurance isn't good for your health after all, uh, that all the difference is only because the insured and uninsured differ in covariates? Uh, you shouldn't be convinced this time either. Uh, why not? Because maybe there are still other covariates that we can't measure that correlate with uninsurance and with mortality, and if we could just measure those, then we'd find out that health insurance would predict health. Um, so the question is, can we improve on simple regression? And I think the answer is, in part, we can. Right? The job in any observational study is to make the treated people, the uninsured, as similar as you can to the control people, the insured, on as many things as you can, and hope that you've controlled for enough things so that what you don't observe about them isn't important. Uh, that's called various names. Selection only on observables is one phrase, right? The idea is you're selected into treatment being uninsured only on what we observe about you. Now, that's never gonna be strictly true. We don't have any way to tell whether it's true because we don't know what we don't observe about you. Um, but we can hope that if we measure a lot of things, it's close. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna use a long period of time, much longer than prior studies. We're gonna use better covariates. We're gonna use a variety of, let me call them state-of-the-art, matching methods for pure observational studies. And the core result I'm gonna show you is a limited effect of health insurance for the uninsured versus uh, all insured. Um, now, take a step to the side. For whom are we interested in the effect? The average treatment effect for the whole sample, the average treatment effect for the treated who are the currently uninsured, the average treatment effect for the controls who are insured. I think the policy question is average treatment effect on, on the treated. What's the effect of adding insurance to people who don't now have it? One problem with regression is it doesn't allow for differences between uh, the, uh, the treated and the controls, and we want a method that will allow for different treatment effects, for heterogeneous treatment effects. Um, problem with prior studies, I think a crucial problem. All of the prior studies do this. They divide the world into treated, who are the uninsured, controls, who are the privately insured, and they throw away the publicly insured. Why? 
because they say, maybe the publicly insured have qualifying medical conditions or disabilities not fully measured in the survey that could have biased our results. Yeah, they might, but the privately insured could have health characteristics that would bias your results the other way. You can't say we don't measure health very well, so we're gonna throw out this sick group and then compare the uninsured to the healthy ones who are left. Just invalid, you can't do that. You have to compare to everyone. You may wanna treat the privately insured as an upper bound, the publicly insured as a lower bound. That's the approach we take in the project, but you can't just throw them out. Okay, so we're gonna use a variety of, let me call them state-of-the-art estimation methods. This is a policy audience, so I'll skip the technical details. Uh, the study is a 10,000-person survey run by the government every two years since 1992, um, and we're gonna look at death and also your health while you're still alive. Um, but before I show you the results, what do you expect? The initial age for the HRS sample is 50 to 61, near elderly. We're gonna follow them for 20 years. They're all gonna, gonna either die before they get to Medi Medicare age or become Medicare age and get insured. My prior was if there's an effect, it should peak at about 10 years, the average at Medicare age, and then tr trail off as everyone's insured. That's not what we're gonna find, um, but I want you to ask before I show you results, what's your prior? Uh, how do we make the treated and controlled similar? Um, forget the equation. The idea is you're gonna measure everyone's propensity to be insured based on everything we know about them, and then use a weighting scheme to make the uninsured and the insured uh, similar. That's the core idea. Okay, so here's a core result from the paper. Um, this is um, inverse propensity weighting to provide the proper balance, plus a regression on all the covariates. This is called a doubly robust method. And what do you see? Well, you don't see a whole lot. You see the extra mortality of the uninsured basically at the zero line. That's the blue line. The red dots are 90% confidence intervals. And then it tilts up a little bit in years 16, 18, and 20, maybe gets the statistical significance. Now that's kind of weird. That wasn't my prior. Maybe that really long-term effect is real, or maybe it's the slow emergence of selection on unobservables that people were different to begin with. But in any event, not finding much evidence that health insurance matters for mortality for a, a very long period of time in contrast to the prior studies, which never went out that far to begin with, right? Our, our estimate is basically zero. Okay, I'm never satisfied doing things one way. I wanna do them five ways uh, just to see whether the method matters. So here's a different way. Uh, we're gonna match on propensity log odds. We're basically gonna get the same results, nothing happening through year 14. We're gonna stratify on the propensity score, subdivide the sample, and then run a regression within the subsamples and then add them up. Uh, the bounce bounces around a little bit more, but still really nothing going on through, through 12 or 14 years. Uh, we're gonna use a fancy, uh, a fancy method. I won't try to explain it. Multiple imputation with two splines within subclasses. Uh, okay, but same basic results. Nothing happening through, through 12 years, maybe 14 years. Uh, well, maybe the problem is it's only the long-term uninsured who would benefit from health insurance. People come in and out of insurance. Turns out our data set can't really answer that question very well. It's not big enough. There aren't enough long-term uninsured. The best we can do is ask, do the twice uninsured at 1992 and 1994 die faster? And the answer to that is no. Uh, maybe long-term uninsured would, but we can't measure that. Okay, so I suggested that we might be able to bound our estimates by saying 
The privately uninsured are unobservably healthier, at least they could be. The publicly insured are unobservably sicker. So this would be an upper bound, right? Compare the uninsured to the privately insured. And now we are going to get statistical significance, but again, only really late. Right? Still not much going on very early on. Now, prior studies found a big effect of being publicly insured as meaning higher mortality, public insurance kills you. One sign for whether we've done a good job of matching is whether that effect goes away, because I might think public insurance is a little bit good or a little bit bad, but I don't think it's really, really bad uh, for you. Um, so we still have negative coefficients. Maybe that means uh, public insurance is bad for you. Maybe it means we haven't fully controlled for unobservables, but we're much closer to zero than uh, the methods in other studies would have, which suggests we're doing something right. Okay. So that's the basic result. Not much evidence of an effect on mortality. Um, certainly, our upper and lower bounds are much smaller than the estimates of prior studies. OK, next question, effect of uninsurance on health. And Michael will tell me when I should stop. Um, does uninsurance lead to worse health while you're still alive? We have to control for initial health. Um, we can ask the question, do the uninsured consume less health care? Yes. So here's an overall <coughs> index, roughly speaking, 20 percent to 30% less health care consumption while you're uninsured. And then it creeps up towards zero when they reach Medicare age, but never quite gets there. So there's no rebound effect. If you consume less health care early, you actually continue to consume a little bit less later on. Maybe you just get used to not going to the doctor uh, as often. But also, this should tell you part of why a small effect is plausible. It's not like the uninsured get low health care. They get 70% as much, 80% as much, if the marginal benefit of the extra health care isn't so great, if we're at what's called flat of the curve medicine, maybe that explains why we have overall a small effects. Uh, then we look at whether you become sicker while you're still alive. And I'm going to show you results for a, a sum of 11 measures that we have in the health and retirement study. Um, Self-reported health, have you had one of a bunch of diseases? Are you disabled in various ways? Um, if the uninsured were becoming sicker then this line should be above zero. Uh, it's not. If anything, it's a little bit below zero, um, but not statistically significant in most cases. So it's not the case that you become sicker or more disabled while you're, you're uninsured, as best we can tell. And then I can show you a bunch of individual graphs, no effect on heart disease. Stroke is bouncier, but nothing uh, significant. Um, uh, diabetes, we thought maybe diabetes often gets undiagnosed, right? So the uninsured will look um, okay until they turn 65, and then they will look sicker, but that's not the pattern that we see here. Uh, depression, that was the one finding that the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment found in the near term. We don't find anything for depression. Activity limitations on activities of daily living. You take a bath, can you dress yourself? All the coefficients are, are negative, though mostly insignificant. So, okay, it's hard to measure precisely the effect of insurance. What we really need is there are 10,000 people in the HRS there are only 1,500 uninsured. What we need is a sample 100 times as big, right, to really have a good sense of what's going on. Um, we don't have a, a, good, a good enough sample. Nothing we can do about that right now. Um, so within our confidence bounds, could there be an effect? There could be. Um, 10,000 isn't nearly enough. I'd still guess the effect is small. Uh, why? Because we insure lots of people in various ways. They get lots of, of health care. Um, why might it be true that health insurance doesn't help on average? Because insurance might help some people and hurt others. You'll get evidence is you get slightly better care in emergencies. You get more preventive care. 
but not all of that is good. Colonoscopies are good. Pap smears are good. Mammograms in some age range, not clearly good. PSA tests, probably net bad. Right? So maybe that's why we see uh, small overall effects. Flat of the curve medicine I talked about. OK, now let's have some fun. This is not in the paper. If insurance matters, imagine it matters for some subgroup, right? For whom? We've got three main groups, Caucasians, blacks, and non-black Hispanics. There weren't enough Asians in the study at the time. We've got men and women. If there's going to be an effect for someone, for whom you would, you would, you, would you predict it to be? So think about that for 10 seconds, and then I'll give you the answer. This was too politically incorrect to put in one paper. So it's going to go in the second paper. So um, this is my co-author, Kate Litvak's favorite graph. So here's the effect for women. No effect for men. But this one actually shows up reasonably early. It starts becoming significant after eight years. Now let's separate the women into white women and black women, black, black Hispanic women. All the effect is for white women. If this is right, health insurance is good for white women and nobody else. Why? Her story was they're the ones who go to the doctor and listen to what the doctor says. So it's at least plausible, right? Um, but not politically correct. This is just a different way of showing there's no aggregate difference in mortality. Um, this is a graph that says, right? so this is when you turn Medicare age. This is now slicing the data a different way. Notice that uh, the uninsured cut their health care use in the two ways before they turn Medicare. They're waiting. They're waiting to get insured. They're using less health care in the meantime. So what are we going to do going forward in the future? Um, I want a sample 100 times as big. We have California and New York data, 20 years of data, 50 million people. We don't know nearly as much about them, but there are a lot more of them. Maybe that will give us another way to estimate the effect of health on uh, mortality. Uh, I'm working on a di difference in difference study comparing Medicaid expansion to non-expansion states of the effect on diabetes care. If you're going to find an effect, diabetes is a good place to look. It's big, important, lots of people have diabetes, and we know a fair bit about how to treat it. We tell you to diet and lose weight. You don't, but at least we can give you some meds uh, that will help. Right? So we're going to have 70 times the sample size that the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment found. They didn't find anything for diabetes. If it's there, we ought to find it. OK, let me skip over, over, uh, over this stuff. Um, and finish with, with this if I can. What about the ACA Medicaid expansion? Wonderful opportunity. 50 state natural experiment, which I'm studying with, with Kosali Simon, whom Ben Summers has worked with. No significant effect on mortality after two years. We'll get a third data year soon. We don't expect much. Uh, most coefficients are negative, lower mortality. Um, but we didn't expect much in the near term. On the other hand, bigger problem. We look at the power of our analysis, and it turns out that even with all 50 states, as long as you're using aggregate mortality data, county-level data is what you can, you know, we, we get individual-level data, but we only identify people to the county. We can't detect effects of plausible size even if they're there. The smallest effect we can detect is way too large to be plausible. Waiting for more years of data won't help. What we're going to need is a very large individual-level uh, data set. Um, uh, okay, so now, now I'm really done. Uh, does Medicaid kill people? So one of the current DC rumors is Medicaid is bad for you because you'll go get prescriptions for pain meds and then you'll overdose on the pain meds or maybe you'll graduate from that to, to street heroin or fentanyl and overdose on that. 
And there is indeed some supporting evidence uh, for this, mixed evidence on statistical significance. Um, my advice is don't believe the rumor yet. But for that particular cause of death, there is indeed some supporting evidence. Medicaid could be good for you in some ways and bad for you in other ways. This one is synthetic opioid deaths, not total opioid deaths, right? Not heroin, um, which is just going up in all states, um, but the synthetic stuff. Um, and this is, uh, this is 2014. This is 2015. Maybe there's something there. Don't know yet. I didn't do this study. I don't vouch for it. I just wanted to show the slide. Thank you. Thanks, Bernie. Uh, it is nice when, um, when data limitations come from the fact that the problem is too small to yield statistical significance. Um, let's see. Uh, most uh, to, uh, When preparing my remarks, I, I was reminded of, uh, of, a, uh, of the fact that I attended college in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, most of you probably know that Charlottesville has been in the news lately. It's gotten a lot of media attention for, not that, wait for it, for its bagels. Okay? If you've never been to Charlottesville uh, to sample uh, its bagels, you should. Uh, this article claims that Charlottesville has the best bagels in the world. They're talking about this establishment. It's known as Bodo's Bagels. It is an institution in Charlottesville. It was when I was there 25 years ago. It still is. Um, and for about that much time, I have been making that claim to people, the same claim that this article makes, uh, that really the best bagel I have ever had uh, was in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now, I've also ma I've made this claim to lots of people from New York. And New Yorkers all have the same reaction when you tell them that you think, you know, you think the best bagels in the world are in Charlottesville, Virginia. They say they have the same reaction. They say, interesting hypothesis seems to conflict with a lot of empirical evidence about bagels, but hey, let's run a trial. Of course, I'm kidding. They, they don't say anything. None of them say this. They've never, I've never had a New Yorker say anything like that. The conversation instead goes like this. They say, that is nonsense. Everybody knows the best bagels are from New York. I ask, have you ever tried a Bodo's bagel? No, I don't need to try a Bodo's bagel. Everybody knows the best bagels are from New York. I, well, how do you know if uh, you haven't tried Bodo's bagels? Because New York bagels are special, they tell me. Well, how do you know they're special? Well, it's the water, and it just goes, how do you know? And then how do you know Charlottesville water isn't better than New York water, and so on and so on. Uh, and you get the sense. I've got, I got the sense after years that this really wasn't about bagels at all. This was really about tribal signaling and New Yorkers wanting to tell, uh, tell me and the rest of the world that New, New York is better, not that their bagels are better. They just wanted to signal that their tribe is better than your tribe. Now, let me uh, make clear that uh, uh, not, I would be happy to be wrong about Bodo's being the best bagels in the world. And why is that? Because that would mean there's an even better bagel out there somewhere, and that would be wonderful. That would be fantastic. Uh, tell me where there's a better bagel, and I will try it. I will run my own trial. In fact, I'm a bit of a, I'm even a bit of a traitor to my own tribe here because I'm from New York. I, I spent more time there as, as a child than I spent in Charlottesville. My grandparents immigrated there. I would, uh, I, I would, uh, uh, and, and yet, so, so what I'm interested in is well, where's the best bagel? And all this came to mind as I was preparing my remarks because something very similar happens, I think, when it comes to questions of the impact of health insurance on health. And it works like this. So Bernie's study is an important one 
Uh, they've done an observational study that tries, that looks at a lot of data and tries to control for as many things as they can find to make sure that what they're actually measuring is the impact of health insurance on health. But as good a job as he does, this is, this is still an observational study, and as he and his co-authors admit in the paper, they can have as many controls as they want, but there's still going to be some things that they cannot observe, and therefore they cannot control for those things. And those things may have some sort of effect on the outcomes that they're measuring. It may have uh, an effect that, uh, and so what they might be ascribing to, uh, an effect they might be ascribing to health insurance might be uh, an effect. Uh, something else that causes someone to be insured uh, privately versus publicly versus uninsured. Uh, and it's just very hard in an observational study to, to control for all those things, which is why you need a, uh, a different kind of study, what we call a randomized controlled study, where the whether you get health insurance or not is not dependent on some uh, some characteristic that we might not be able to control for. We're putting people with all sorts of characteristics in both the control arm and the treatment arm, and then we can reasonably infer that if there is a difference in terms of health outcomes or healthcare utilization or what have you, that that is coming from uh, what we're trying to measure, which, which is whether you got health insurance or not. And there have been two studies, uh, two uh, randomized controlled studies that I think bear on this question. <laughs> One of them was conducted in the late 70s and early 80s. It was called the RAND Health Insurance Experiment. This was not an experiment that tested the effect of health insurance itself. It was an experiment that tested the effect of, well, what if we give people a baseline level of health insurance and then give other people more health insurance than that? We'll randomly assign them to these uh, various groups, and we'll see if having more health insurance produces more health. Well, what they found was that uh, there's this large margin where giving people additional health insurance and which leads them to consume more health care does not improve health. A large margin uh, on the order of maybe a quarter to a third of how much health care these people are consuming, depending on how you measure it, was not producing any discernible improvements in health, not in mortality, not in all, all sorts of other uh, health indicators. And so that suggests that an awful lot of medical care that people consume, at least when they're heavily insured, is not benefiting them, is not improving their health. The second randomized control study that bears on this question is one that was conducted more recently in Oregon. This began in, was it 2006? I think it began in 2006. The state of Oregon decided that it wanted to open its Medicaid program to more adults under the poverty line, but they didn't have enough money for all adults who might be eligible, so they decided they would have a lottery. Some economists seized on this. They said, wait a second, let us measure, because that is random assignment. Uh, for some reason, we don't do that in health policy, uh, but you are doing it for uh, your own reasons, let us, uh, let us measure what happens to the people who get health insurance, the people who don't get health insurance. And what they found was they did find that, uh, that giving people health insurance, giving uh, poor adults Medicaid coverage, uh, improved uh, some measures of financial security. There were improvements in mental health, uh, improvements uh, on, uh, on measured depression. But when it came to measures of physical health, and the author specified these before uh, they ran the, the, uh, the experiment, when it came to measures of physical health like blood pressure control, blood sugar control, uh, cholesterol levels, 
they found no discernible improvement in these measures of physical health. That is to say, they, uh, the results that they got were, showed there was some improvement in health, but the results were statistically indistinguishable from zero. Those results could have, at, at, you know, the conventional, uh, 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 using conventional confidence intervals, uh, they found that uh, they could not distinguish those results from no effect, that, um, that this might have been statistical noise. So how can we explain this? Well, as Bertie uh, uh, explains in his paper, since the uninsured do have some uh, access to some level of health care, it's not that they're getting no health care, they're getting some health care. Because they have access to some level of health care, uh, even without insurance, this suggests that we may be at a point where expanding health insurance does not improve health because the additional stuff that people might be getting might be like the additional stuff that people got in the Rand Health Insurance experiment, uh, some beneficial stuff, some stuff that wasn't helping at all, but maybe the beneficial stuff is being offset by the harmful stuff, and there's a lot of ways that healthcare can harm people. And so this suggests a hypothesis that we may be at that point. But uh, try floating that uh, hypothesis in some circles. And I should say that uh, there are a lot of criticisms you can make of an observational study like the one that uh, Bernie and his co-authors put together. But at worst, what this study does is it suggests an interesting hypothesis, that interesting hypothesis. But if you suggest that a hypothesis in some circles, well, you might as well be telling New Yorkers that the best bagels in the world are south of the Mason-Dixon line. Because uh, they, uh, they will tell you that, no, of course health insurance improves health, health because we have all these other studies that, sh uh, that show an effect. And there have been literature reviews uh, that uh, there's been a lot of studies done on this. And uh, uh, both Bernie and uh, Ben Summers have uh, been co-authors on a lot of these uh, that do show some effect. Some are observational studies. Some are quasi-experimental, where you're not taking a defined population and, and randomly assigning them uh, to different uh, arms of the study. But you're taking effect of some, or taking advantage of some policy change or something that has that may have the effect of randomly assigning people, or may have similar effects, uh, so that the people who are who end up in the treatment and control arms are not, uh, hopefully, are not there because of uh, some factor that may uh, influence whether they get health insurance or uh, or, or or their health status or some other uh, confounding factor. Uh, and that literature finds mixed results. Some studies, like uh, the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, find no effect on health. Bernie's uh, would be one of these that, uh, that finds for many years uh, no effect on health. Maybe in the out years, a small effect on health uh, uh, from, from getting, gaining insurance. Uh, and, uh, and some studies do find large effects. None of these studies are as reliable as the two randomized controlled trials that we have on this topic. Uh, and so uh, when you suggest, well, you know, the, the, the evidence is sort of mixed, maybe what we need to do is run more trials. Uh, uh, in some cir circles, people will tell you that that's unethical to do those trials. Uh, but that is really just another way of saying we just know, we don't have to go down to Charlottesville because we know who has the best bagels. I think the, the argument is stronger that the unethical, given all the conflicting evidence, the unethical thing is not to run. Uh, more trials to figure out what are we getting for all the money that the government is spending on, on health insurance expansions like the Affordable Care Act's health insurance exchanges and Medicaid expansion, uh, Medicaid expansion and even the pre-ACA Medicaid program and even the Medicare program. 
I think the best way to think about uh, this question and the state of the literature really hasn't changed since two economists named Helen Levy and David Meltzer wrote about it in 2004. Uh, they said that they looked at the literature then and they said one is left with the conclusion that health insurance can improve health, but with no evidence of exactly what interventions related to insurance will do so most effectively. And there's no evidence, there was no evidence at that time that uh, money aimed at improving health would be better spent on insurance expansions than on other possibilities. They mentioned community health centers, screening programs for hypertension, uh, nutrition campaigns, or just alleviating poverty or improving educational levels. Uh, they looked at the literature again in 2008, came to pretty much the same conclusion, uh, and, and said the central question of how health insurance affects health uh, for whom it matters and how much remains largely unanswered at the level of detail needed to inform policy decisions. They uh, went on to say that definitive answers to these questions about how specific health insurance policy options affect health are likely to be forthcoming only with investment of substantial resources and social experiments. They're talking about the sort of experiments that we saw in, with RAND with, uh, in Oregon. Um, but there, there's been no call, but if you look at the debate over uh, the Affordable Care Act or the government's role in health care and health insurance markets more generally, there's no, almost no call for, or almost no one, and I think there is no one saying uh, that we should be having those experiments. Aside from academics, there's an economist named uh, Robin Hansen at George Mason University put online several years ago a petition, I went ahead and signed it, uh, I believe, that, that said that we should be using some of the money that the government is spending on all these health insurance expansions to do a randomized controlled trial to figure out what we're getting for all that money, to find out if these expansions really work, if they are improving health. I don't think we're going to get uh, uh, any answers, uh, like Levy and Meltzer, I don't think we're gonna get the answers we want until we run those sorts of experiments. And um, well, with that, I'll stop and I'll turn things over to Ben and I look forward to uh, your questions in the Q&A. Thanks. Great, thanks Michael. <clears throat> All right, I see we are uh, running a little behind, but uh, hopefully I will get my comments in. Um, and I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to be here and offer somewhat of a different perspective on, on kind of what the research evidence says. Uh, I, I'm not gonna do a detailed commentary on, on Bernie's paper. Um, I think putting in the broader context of the research literature is probably a more useful way to spend uh, my time, but I think we can, in the Q&A, do some, some more detailed discussion if people are interested. But I think both Bernie and, and Michael laid the groundwork nicely in thinking about levels of evidence in different types of studies. Um, and the observational studies Michael described, I think, really better than I could, uh, what the concerns and limitations are in trying to really make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of people who happen to have health insurance and people who happen not to, who are really entirely different groups of people, along with those who have private versus public. Um, and uh, you know, Bernie's group uh, uh, takes a rigorous approach with uh, what is essentially a very limited study design. And they're not the first to try this. As he commented on, there are several other studies that have done this over the years. Um, and you know, briefly, uh, you, know, you can take a different national survey and analyze the data similarly, and you actually can get different answers. Uh, Rick Kronick, a couple years ago, looked at uh, the National Health Interview Survey. Um, uh, there's a study by uh, Wilper and colleagues looking at the National Health and Nutritional Examination Study. Um, there's the McWilliams paper that Bernie mentioned that uses the Health and Retirement Survey. 
And across these four studies, if we group them together, um, they all agree that people who are uninsured die at higher rates than the general population. And then they try to tease out whether that's because they don't have health insurance or because of these other factors. Well, two find that it makes a big difference that whether they have health insurance even after you take into account these other factors. And two find, well, actually, it doesn't matter once you take into account these other factors. So kind of with the inherent limitations of the study design, we have a split decision. The gold standard is the randomized trial, exactly, again, as Michael described. Uh, the RAND study is a great study, but I don't really think of it as a study of health insurance. It's a study of cost sharing. Everyone in the study had health insurance, and we're talking about people who faced various uh, cost sharing requirements, um, whether they had a high deductible, but all of them had insurance. Uh, so it offers different implications than what we're talking about generally in the policy circle, which is not the degree of cost sharing, but whether we're covering people at all. Um, and, uh, you know, in that regard, the Oregon study is really, you know, the most relevant randomized trial we have. Well, what does Oregon say about mortality? Um, it showed that after, over the one to two year follow-up period, a 16% decline in mortality. That sounds good. The problem was there were only, uh, the number of deaths in the sample size meant that the margin of error could be anywhere from an 80% reduction in mortality to a 50% increase in mortality. In other words, Oregon study is just nowhere near big enough or long enough to tell us anything particularly precise or meaningful about mortality effects. So what's left then is between those, that gold standard and these kind of limited cross-sectional uh, cross or uh, observational studies are the natural experiments. So let me tell you briefly about a few of these uh, that, that I've been involved in and that others have done. Um, so we studied the Massachusetts health reform in 2006, which was the precursor to the ACA. Um, and what we did was we had a, a, a series, we had a, a group of counties um, in the state of Massachusetts where basically you know, there was a broad expansion of coverage. And we compared them to what happened in counties from across the country that were demographically similar and similar baseline mortality trends. And what we found was in the four years after the expansion of coverage, mortality dropped in Massachusetts by 2.9%, uh, a highly statistically significant result. And when you dig into that, it actually shows you a pattern that looks exactly like what you would expect if health insurance expansion was saving lives. Who, where were the reductions in mortality? They were in poorer counties. They were in counties with more people who had been uninsured before the policy. What kinds of deaths were falling in Massachusetts? Uh, causes of death that are potentially treatable with health care, things like heart disease, infections, cancer, diabetes. What wasn't falling very much? Things like deaths from car crashes, where health insurance probably doesn't matter very much. Um, who, what about the age distribution? Well, you might think maybe something else was going on in Massachusetts. Well, we looked at those who are 65 and over, who were not eligible for the state's expansion, who already had Medicare. There's no change going on for the elderly. It's only the non-elderly, again, in the areas with high rates of uninsurance for the causes that are treatable with health care. Okay, so that's one study, um, but that's not the only one. So we also did some work looking at large state Medicaid expansions in the early 2000s. And here we compared three states that expanded Medicaid to, to, to poor adults and childless adults to four neighboring states that are demographically similar but hadn't expanded. Over five years of follow-up, we found a 6% decline in mortality. In follow-up work with more detailed data, uh, that actually was published in the same issue of the American Journal of Health Economics that Bernie's paper just came out. Um, I reanalyzed this data and dig, did a deeper dive, and we again see the pattern similar to what we saw in Massachusetts. The decline in the death rates were primarily in low-income areas. They were primarily uh, for the causes of death that we think are potentially treatable with health care. And it actually tracked quite closely at the county level with the extent of coverage change during the expansion. So the areas that had big gains in coverage were the same ones where the mortality rate was falling. Uh, there's also a recent study published in medical care by McClellan and colleagues where they looked at the young adults gaining coverage under the Affordable Care Act and compared them to slightly older adults who were not eligible for that expansion in 2010. Uh, and again, for healthcare amenable causes of death, they see this decline for uh, the group eligible for this big coverage expansion, not uh, in the control group. 
OK. So there's a, a fair bit of quasi-experimental evidence or these natural experiments that, that suggest the uh, expansion, expansions in coverage can reduce mortality. But this is really part of a broader conversation that I think Michael's quite right in pointing out, which is, well, what's the general impact on health? Mortality is not the only outcome. And for most people for whom the risk of death is small is probably not the main short-term issue they're worrying about in their health. And so we recently completed, along with uh, Kate Baker, who was one of the lead investigators in the Oregon study, and Atul Gawande, the three of us published a review uh, of the research, research evidence from the past decade uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we focused on those kind of high quality studies. There we go. Shout out to, I don't get royalties, but there it is. Um, and in this paper, we really focused on the randomized trials, the few that there are, and the, um, uh, the quasi-experimental studies. And interestingly, um, I didn't know, Michael, you were going to talk about those reviews. Most of the studies we talk about have come out since the Meltzer review, because I think that that review was accurate as of the time that it was published. There's been a whole lot more evidence, in part because the ACA has given us a lot of variation to study, and because state decisions have given us more opportunity to study the effects of insurance expansion. So what did we find? Well, we looked at over 40 studies that have been published since 2007. What we found were broad and multifaceted uh, changes, largely beneficial across a wide range of aspects of healthcare and health for people gaining insurance under insurance expansions. We see people getting more of the types of care that we think they should get if we want to improve health. More primary care, more prevention, more cancer screenings, more testing for conditions like high cholesterol, diabetes, HIV. Um, we see that people are getting more consistent care for chronic diseases, and they report that that care has, has, has improved. We see that people are more likely um, to be diagnosed with the chronic conditions like diabetes, so that if they have it, they, they're aware of it and get, can get treated for it. We also see um, improvements in treatment and detection of cancer in some studies, not all of them. Some don't find a significant effect, but others show a reduction in late-stage cervical cancer uh, after insurance expansions, reductions in emergency colon cancer surgery, meaning people are coming in earlier and getting the tumors resected when there's a chance of cure. Um, we also see fewer people waiting until their appendix has ruptured and getting care because they've had health insurance. That's among young adults. So a variety of both acute and more long-term primary care concerns that we see people are getting better care. We also see improvements in um, primary care prescri and prescription drug usage, particularly for chronic conditions. This is work I did with Kosali Simon. We see more prescriptions being filled for diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic conditions in particular. We also, in survey work, have shown that expansions in coverage lead to better medication adherence. So being prescribed is great, but if you don't stay on it, it's not helpful. We see not only people are filling the prescriptions, but they're less likely to have to skip any prescriptions subsequently. OK, so at this point, you should be stopping me. And I, Michael Wood, I know, uh, put up his hands and say, well, wait a second. I think you literally wrote a blog post, say, huge stop sign on Obamacare. The Oregon study. And, um, and if I had done a straw poll in this room beforehand, I guess I, I probably would have gotten a majority view similar to Michael's, which is the conclusion of the Oregon study is health insurance has no impact on health. Right? So quick straw poll, how many people, that's your main interpretation of the Oregon study. No impact on health. Clearly, you would raise your hand if you were really voting. OK, no. No, all right, we'll talk. I'll we'll, we'll be in my next two slides. Oh, good. Go all right. So, three important clinical measures hemoglobin A1C, blood pressure, cholesterol control. We see no statistically significant difference over a median follow up of 18 months. These are important measures to look at, for sure. If we, had not, if we had seen something in them, that would have been quite important. What do we make of the fact that we didn't see something? Well, let's take diabetes. So diabetes in the study, increased rates of diagnosis of diabetes statistically significant. Higher rates of people being treated with approved drugs for diabetes. One interpretation is, well, but maybe these drugs that have been approved by the FDA and have shown uh, efficacy for diabetes management don't work in poor people. 
I don't find that particularly plausible clinically. Um, another interpretation is if you had a bigger sample, I'm really interested in this 10 million person registry, that maybe you would see something and the point estimates in the Oregon study are potentially consistent with what you'd expect for these drugs based on what we know about them, but you need more uh, study with a bigger sample. Completely agree, more studies, bigger samples, always better, always better for drawing conclusions. But even given those limitations of those three measures, we know that depression scores went way down. People felt better. They were more likely to be treated for their depression. This is the lead, one of the leading causes of, of disability in the country. We also know when you ask people about their overall health status, they said it was better. Okay, uh, That's actually not just an Oregon finding, though it's most striking in Oregon. If you ask people if they're in excellent, very good, fair, poor health, uh, it turns out that after state Medicaid expansions in the 2000s, after Massachusetts health reform, after the Oregon study, uh, young adult provision of the ACA, all of those have had consistent findings that people say their health has improved when they're in the coverage popula expansion population compared to those who are not eligible. Now, uh, the ACA-related studies have been more mixed. Uh, a handful, to, uh, there have been about four studies that I know that have tracked this. Two found effects on self-reported health thus far, two didn't. Um, so not as, not as clear cut. But what you get out of this is this question of, well, does it even matter, right? That's uh, something we've heard in policy circles in discussing the Oregon study. Well, why do you care if it's self-reported? Show me the hard measures. Well, I'll give you two answers to that. The first is I'm a practicing primary care doctor. And if I told my patient who comes in, when they say, I feel better, doc, and I say, I don't really care, um, I'd be out of a job, and rightfully so, right? Probably two-thirds or more of the medical care we provide is geared towards helping people feel better. Um, it, there's not always a lab number that we attach to everything. We talk about symptom management. We talk about quality of life. And for any condition you can name, how a patient reports their symptoms and their status is a key aspect of how we measure health. But secondly, even if all you care about is death, it turns out when you ask someone if they're, what their health status is, it's a pretty good predictor of whether they die. Um, so studies that have followed people over time, when you ask them if they're in uh, excellent, fair, good, poor health, um, that people who say they're in poor or fair, fair or poor health, the worst categories, die at rates two to ten times higher than people in excellent health. So the data here from Oregon, as well as this other large body quasi-experimental studies, are entirely consistent with the idea that health insurance improves health through improved health care and that people live longer. Now, I should say, does that mean that it, it does so in all cases and I can give you an exact number on the ACA's impact? No. We need studies of that, and it's possible every expansion, every population is different. But I think what is clear is that in, in our survey of these 40 studies over the past decade, as well as older studies, there is, there is really no plausible argument that giving health insurance to people doesn't help them, and not just financially. Um, now, we can quibble on specific, any given study, any given outcome, you can always, uh, there are always arguments of, you know, could they have done it differently? This study says that, that says that. Completely agreed, and if we want to get into the, the individual studies, I think that's a reasonable, uh, certainly academic talking point. But from the broader policy statement, does health insurance matter for people's health? Our conclusion in this survey of 40 studies was it clearly does in multifaceted ways, not for everybody, not immediately, but overall that there is a clear benefit of expanding coverage. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we should expand coverage in all cases, right? I think the honest policy debate then is this does cost more. You do not save money by covering people, and there's also an appropriate debate that's really beyond my level of expertise in my area of study of whether uh, expansion of coverage using public dollars is the appropriate role for government, whether it's federal, state, or local. I think Michael has really been kind of the, the most consistent public advocate of the perspective that even if there are these benefits, that doesn't mean they're worth the cost. And it also doesn't mean that this is the federal government's job to do it in this way. I think that that is a, a refreshingly honest uh, approach to this debate. And often what we get is a muddied water in the middle. And I think the claim that there is no benefit of expansion of coverage, I think, is not supported by the evidence. 
I'll finish with a final comment because I love the, Bogo, uh, the Bodo bagel example. So Michael asked right, quite rightly of his New York friends, have you ever tried Bodo's bagels? Um, but let me flip that around. I've asked my patients, how does it feel to be uninsured? Most of them really don't like it. Most of them really think their health care is better and their health is better when they have insurance. And I think there's a large body of evidence that makes the same claim. Thanks so much. Looking forward to your questions. The pop up here, it's easier to see. Uh, Bernie, did you want to respond I think first? Well, no, we're short on time. Let's, let's okay. Let's do that. that. Let me say one thing that I could go over, let's say, the summer victory for Massachusetts study and tell you why I think the results are statistically insignificant. Um, I don't want to take the time. What I want to do and say instead is we're asking an evidence-based question. We're not asking about, I believe this, right? We're trying to do research and get answers, and then we can debate whether the results are statistically significant or not. And maybe the second thing is that statistically insignificant results are not the same thing as, as no results. And so, uh, so, so Ben made an important point about the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment for diabetes, right? We uh, diagnose more diabetics, we put them on medicine, some of them will take their meds, and we find no apparent effect on blood sugar. Why is that? That's kind of weird, right? We kind of know what the effect of the standard first-line treatment for diabetes should be. Why do they find nothing? Is it likely that nobody's taking their meds? Not so much. Maybe the sample is just too small. Their null result is close to zero, but their confidence bounds are consistent with everybody's taking their meds and the meds are having their predicted effect, or nobody's taking their meds. We don't know. That's part of why you need uh, a follow-up study with a sample size that's 70 times uh, bigger. Um, but, but I think we need more evidence-based policy um, and less faith-based policy. Great. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm Bill Klein, a retired Army physician, so I didn't have to deal with insurance with my patients. But I'm curious. I, we all die in the long run, so mortality is 100%. I assume you didn't have time to get to the age groups and the different cohorts and things like that. But at old age, uh, where pe most people have some kind of insurance, Medicare, whatever, I'm particularly interested if you have anything to add about the, what happens toward the end of life, where I firmly believe, and it wasn't the subject today really, that a large part of the cost of medicine is what I call, very politically incorrectly, keeping dead people alive, because hospitals and doctors make huge amounts of money at the end of life when people really sh should die naturally. And I'm old enough I can talk that way. Young people can't. But I'm just wondering about these different cohorts and the age group, since we all have 100% mortality. and, and to somebody naive listening to you, you'd assume that you're stopping mortality so people won't die at all, which it really isn't the case. So, so cl clearly not. For, for my study, we start with age 51 to 62. We follow you for 20 years. We're not at the point where the differences have to go to zero by the time everybody gets to age 100. So it, it wasn't, you, if there was an effect on mortality over time, you could then map that over time. If you had 50 years of data, we just never got there. 
Yeah, and you know the the, the notion of mortality being one hundred percent that's that's the lifetime risk of dying is one hundred percent, right? But in any given year, we you know people who are older have a higher risk of dying that year, and younger people have a lower risk of that year. And so what we're seeing is a shift towards lower mortality per year. Another way to think of it is this is mathematically the same as saying an increase in life expectancy. Um, if we don't have another question, then I can maybe uh, address. Um uh, let's see if I, oh, wow, this is Mac. All right, so I'm, uh, I can, um, I can address a, something that, uh, that Ben said, um, that, that I would make the claim that the Oregon study, study shows that, uh, that Medicaid does not impact health. And that's not quite right. I mean, in the literature review that you did with Kate Baker and it told Juan, you, you, you actually cited me for the, ev uh, uh, or something that I wrote, wrote, that blog post that you wrote, uh, as evidence for that claim that some people are saying that the Oregon experiment shows that Medicaid does not improve health, which is actually not what that uh, blog post, or what I wrote in that blog post. Uh, what I wrote in that blog post was, and if I could call it up myself, I would, I would do so, but I'm not sure how to do that just now. Um, so I will go ahead and uh, I'll go ahead and read it that the Oregon health insurance experiment quote found no evidence that, that Medicaid improves the physical health of, physical health of enrollees. There were some modest improvements in depression and financial strain, but it's likely those gains could be achieved at a much lower cost and through an extremely expensive program like Medicaid. So, um, uh, so I certainly do recognize that if th that there were the improvements in mental health, and I think that those are real and important, and I'm glad that they're there. I, I want to go on record as saying that I hope that Medicaid improves health. I would hate for the federal government to be spending half a trillion dollars every year on Medicaid and another half trillion on Medicare and, and not delivering any health improvements. Uh, I hope it does. Uh, but uh, so, so there are those improvements in mental health, but there were no discernible improvements in uh, the measured physical health outcomes. And I think that is actually more significant than uh, a lot of people, particularly those who, uh, for ideological reasons, support the Medicaid program, um, uh, uh, reasons that they don't, they don't appreciate. Um, in your article, you do, in, in your literature review, you say, well, there were not these, uh, we didn't get uh, st statistically significant results, but within the confidence intervals, uh, uh, those confidence intervals are big enough that they're uh, uh, to include the outcome that we would expect. If people use more of these diabetes drugs and uh, these other and these hypertension drugs, we would expect an improvement on these measures. And the, the uh, confidence intervals do include the improvements that we would expect based on other studies. Uh, the literature review does not say. Uh, but it also encompasses zero effect or a negative effect. Well, that's in inherent in saying that there were no significant results, that it has to include zero. Right. So I agree with you. Well, but it was just, well, okay, so, so it, was, it was interesting that, uh, that, that the study uh, uh, or that the, the literature review said statistically insignificant results, but, but really positive effects were possible without also saying no, uh, that, uh, there was, that a null effect was also possible as if you're trying to say, oh, well, yeah, there's still hope for this. Now, it's absolutely true, but I think it's an, an, an important omission. And it's, it's important because even though the FDA has approved these drugs, even though we are expanding a, the Medicaid program to people, those drugs should help. And the people who put the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment together picked diabetes and hypertension and, uh, and, and high cholesterol because there were effective drugs that can improve those markers within the uh, time period 
that they were going to, uh, of, of, you know, within just a couple of years. Um, it is uh, important, I think, it is significant that uh, you were not, that the experiment did not find a, uh, a result that was distinguishable from zero, because even though it should have worked, healthcare is really complex, and there's all sorts of things that can go wrong between giving people medical care and, uh, or, or all sorts of reasons that uh, giving people medical care might not improve the uh, either the intermediate markers that you're looking at or the ultimate markers of, of health. Now, uh, self-reported health, I think, is also is is also important. And as you say, a doctor who asked his patients if they feel better and then they said yes and said I don't care would lose his patients. Uh, I think we can turn that around by saying that if we look at the Medicaid program or, or uh, if we uh, imagine there were a doctor who, after seeing a group of patients for two years, was not able to produce any discernible improvement in their uh, uh, blood pressure control or their blood sugar control or uh, their cholesterol levels, then that doctor might also lose patients. And yet, we, we don't, uh, so, so I think you, you, can, um, um, uh, you can make the, the same charge that way. Um, uh, and one more thing that I want to address is uh, that the, uh, the Levy and Meltzer uh, uh, literature reviews did talk about cost effectiveness. And to your credit, uh, Ben and his colleagues uh, do talk about cost effectiveness in their paper. They find that uh, if the results of the studies that they're looking at are, are accurate, then Medicaid saves lives is at a societal cost of maybe $300,000 to close to $900,000 per life saved. That may sound like a lot, but, but actually the government, the government often spends a lot more, $7.5 million or so, it, uh, to, to save a statistical life. That's important, and I'm glad that you included that. And uh, I think that doesn't quite answer the cost-effectiveness concern because, uh, as Levy and Meltzer suggested, there may be even lower cost ways of saving those lives. But I, I, I commend you for getting the ball rolling on that. Um, uh, my, my one comment went on for an awful long time. Do we have any more questions uh, from the audience? Uh, we'll take Leighton and then Kevin, and then we'll uh, wrap it up. So Leighton is here in the middle, if, we can, if you can wait for the mic. I'll go ahead and do the affiliation, Leighton Koo of George Washington University. Thanks for a good discussion. Uh, I think it's important and fundamental to have good research. Uh, that, that frequently will disagree. I wish that there were fundamental answers for so many questions. Uh, one of the questions I was asking myself is, do we know that education helps people? And I'm not an education researcher, but my understanding would be that that after many, many decades of research on this question by a lot of smart people, the answer is, we don't know. We sure hope so. And, and, and my impression is that, uh, and, and particularly since it was smart people with high degrees doing these studies, they sort of have a bias to want to find that education <laughs> is a better thing. Uh, there are lots of things that we, we, we don't know of. I mean, I think one of the, the critical questions that I'd say is in, in policy debates, I generally find that many of these questions are fundamental but at the margins of where the policy debates are. I mean, so the, the questions are not, uh, you know, is health insurance better or not, but how can we better do this? How can we better do it? You're right, Michael, one of the questions is how can we deal with, with the best uh, array of public investments? I mean, so for example, to follow the, the, the Levy and Meltzer question, should we be investing more money rather than health insurance and something else? I would love to see experiments where we say, okay, let's take all this, these millions of dollars spending on Medicaid and Medicare and try some alternative investment. Uh, regrettably, that's not the way that I see the public debate going. Usually it's like, can we do something like 
increased tax deductions for very wealthy people or for you know stockbrokers or bond traders to, to, to sort of shift the money in that regard. I, I think that to the extent that we have evidence research that it is imperfect that can move questions along uh, at the margin of the debate, that's where we're going to get sort of the bang out of the buck. I think the cost-effectiveness and cost-benefit studies are great. What I view for the mortality studies are things where they're margins of big things. That's what's so useful about some of the stuff that Ben had in their recent review is looking at a variety of indicators because mortality is the sort of the, the, the slam dunk. If you can say, yes, we save lives, that sounds very impressive. But as we do know, we all do die eventually. So. You know, what is so are you coming out in favor of doing randomized controlled trials on uh, current enrollees in the Medicaid program and the Medicare program to figure out whether they're saving lives? If your question is, how can we do the best investments, I'd like to see decent comparative effectiveness trials of what happens of providing health insurance versus providing better housing, providing better education, providing better income supports. Okay. Uh, want to comment? Ben? Ernie? What we do know is that spending on health care crowds out everything else. And um, it's true nationally. It clearly was true in Massachusetts. We have less social services. We have less spending on education. Um, is, are we overall getting better population health? I don't know. I suspect that we're spending money in the wrong way and that we need um, if for the holding constant the same level of government spending, we could do a lot better. Uh, we don't know that for sure, um, but there are a lot of public health interventions that do look like they're highly cost effective, and what happens is the public health just gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And so I actually suspect that we're spending uh, too much, um, but we don't have a, a good control trial that, to confirm that or not. Quick, so that Ben can get uh, in a cab. Kevin. Hi, uh, Kevin Dyer-Rotner from the Heritage Foundation. Um, I was just wondering, so I've noticed that uh, policymakers, and I think Michael and I have had this conversation, they tend to conflate access to care with health insurance, but having health insurance is pretty useless if you don't have a physician to go to in the first place. And many would argue that in certain areas of the country, there's a physician shortage or definitely a maldistribution of physicians. Do you have any sense about how much of that is contributing to the fact that there is you know, considerable uncertainty of whether health insurance and having health insurance is actually have, has any effect on health? So this is certainly an issue for, for Medicaid, where depending on the state, the reimbursement levels might be so low that you have trouble finding a physician. The physicians you can get aren't very good. Um, you know, you keep, you know um, th this is clearly a problem for Medicare, I don't, Medicaid. I don't think it's a problem for the private health insurance exchanges um, uh, because we're subsidizing the health insurance, but you're getting, you know, reasonably ordinary care, I think, maybe some questions about the super narrow networks. Um, but it's certainly an issue for Medicaid and maybe part of why you might get smaller effects out of, out of Medicaid, which is, uh, okay, great, you have insurance, what do you do with it? You know, the reality is, yeah, there are some rural areas where it's hard to find physicians, but the reason why it's hard to find physicians is because there aren't many people there for the physicians to serve. So in terms of fraction of the population, uh, the notion that you can't get at least a primary care physician 
you may not be able to get a specialist if you're out in the boondocks, but um, you may have to drive 50 miles to the primary care physician. Um, but I don't think we're, we're that dramatically underserved in terms of number of people. Two quick comments on that before I hop on my cap. Um, the, the first is I try not to take it personally, Bernie, as a practice primary care doctor to community health center that uh, with mostly Medicaid patients. I, I don't think it's I don't think there's any clear evidence that the doctors that patients are seeing with Medicaid are worse doctors. But <laughs> separate from that, that's an empirical uh, claim. That is right, and I don't think there's evidence. I didn't say that that it's not true. I said I don't think there's any evidence for it. There is evidence that fewer doctors take new patients with Medicaid than with private insurance. There's also copious evidence that's really beyond the uh, the issue of doubt that when you give people Medicaid, when you expand Medicaid, they have better access to care than they did before. Um, Oregon makes that abundantly clear. All the the quasi-experimental surveys I mentioned make that clear. That doesn't mean it's optimal. Does that mean that everyone with coverage has the access they want? No, but it means that any major expansion of health coverage that's been studied in the U.S. has pretty unequivocally shown that by multiple metrics of access to care, the people are improved. That doesn't mean that they don't wish they were even better off, but simply saying, well, only 69% of doctors take new Medicaid patients and 80% say private insurance, that's true, but that doesn't mean that when patients gain Medicaid from being uninsured that they aren't significantly better off in terms of access. I'll also say that I imagine most people in this room have private health insurance. Um, I would love for you to present me the data that show that private health insurance improves your access to care and your health status, and you would come up pretty much empty-handed because most of the studies that have been done have been on public expansions of coverage. That's where the natural experiments are. Um, as far as we're aware in the review that we did for th th this paper, the only head-to-head -head comparison that we could find for a natural experiment of Medicaid and private coverage was Arkansas's private option model uh, under the ACA, and essentially what we found there was people in Kentucky getting Medicaid and people in Arkansas getting the private option had basically the same improvements in access to self-reported health and chronic disease management compared to a state that didn't expand, but really didn't find any differences between the Medicaid and the private. So I think there's an open debate as to whether which of these forms of coverage have advantages, whether there are any major differences, but for those who currently predicate a policy argument that private insurance is clearly superior to Medicaid, it's largely an evidence-free argument other than that physician participation, which is not the same thing as uh, patient access and other measures that, that uh, we describe in the review article. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank my speakers, uh, uh, Bernie and, uh, and Ben, and thank all of you for coming. You can join us for lunch uh, upstairs in the uh, Jaeger uh, Conference Center. If you uh, go down the hallway and up the spiral staircase and back down the way you came, then you'll find uh, lunch in there. Thank you.